Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The early Christians had a dilemma. Not a problem, per se, but a conundrum. The greatest and most consequential one in history, in fact. And the conundrum was this. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that was not a problem. Let's be clear. That was good news. The greatest news that there could possibly be. But it did complicate things. See, from an Old Testament perspective, God was awesome and terrifying and awe-inspiring. But that belief in God was also pretty straightforward. They believed in one God, as they confessed in that great Old Testament confession of faith, what they call the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We worship one God. You shall have no other gods. Boom. Now, it doesn't mean that the Israelites always did that, but that's another story. It was a pretty straightforward picture of, of who God is. But then Jesus has to come along and say things like he did in the gospel reading that we read a moment ago. When he professes and, and tells the religious leaders, before Abraham was, I am. I am. This is a naked claim to divinity, to equality with the God who had told Moses in the burning bush, I am. That is my name. Now, Jesus here identifies himself with the true God of Israel, and the religious leaders do what they had to do. They pick up stones in order to stone him because it's blasphemy. Unless it's true. And thus you have this complication of Jesus going and rising from the dead, coming back up out of the grave, and thus vindicating his claims to deity of equality with God the Father. But wait, there's more. Because not only do you have Jesus coming up from the grave, but you also have the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven on all of the disciples, falling in tongues of flame and then incinerating whatever, whatever was left of your neat and tidy picture of God. Because we now have not only God, the Father Almighty, but we also have Jesus who claims to be the I Am and says that he too is the Son of the Father. And you have the Holy Spirit who is in some way distinct from God and yet at the same time is to be identified with God. What are we to make of all of this? As the early Christians were trying to make sense of this, suddenly their simple, straightforward picture of God had been scrambled like eggs and flipped like flapjacks. And what do you do with that? It's delicious, but it's still a dilemma. Let's breathe for just a second, <clears throat> Pastor. And I want to do a quick little digression about theology. Because this is where folks will say, look, this is the problem with theology and you theologians. It is this dry, dusty, abstract stuff. Neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. This person is confused, amen? There's a reason we only say it once a year, the Athanasian Creed. It's important, but once a year is enough. We have this impression that theology is this kind of top-down imposition on the otherwise simple, straightforward, biblical faith. And there's this notion that, that theology is just kind of ramming some stuff in there that's not there in the scriptures, right? If we didn't have theology, we could all just have this simple, you know, biblical religion of following Jesus, being kind to each other, and isn't that sweet? 
And by the way, you should be kind to each other and follow Jesus. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but it is assuredly not true that theology is just this top-down imposition, this abstract philosophizing. In fact, theology, at its best, is instead this bottom-up work of wrestling with how God has revealed himself in the scriptures and in Christian experience. It's taking all of that data and dealing with it, struggling with it, taking God to the mat and saying, what are you teaching us here, Lord? It's working with the concrete realities of God as he has revealed himself. That's what it's all about. It's not top-down but bottom-up. It's not meant to be abstract, but concrete, focusing on who God is and, and how he has made himself known to us. That's what we are doing in theology. That's why it's so important. It's not other than Scripture, but it's wrestling with Scripture and deciding, okay, which God do we really want? A simplistic God that's perfectly reasonable? or God as he has truly revealed himself to be in all of his wild majesty and glory. It makes me think of a story, possibly legendary, about St. Augustine. And I may have shared this before, but it bears repeating. So St. Augustine is one of the greatest teachers of the early church, somebody who helped to articulate and, and develop this doctrine of the Trinity. But one day, Augustine, as he is still working through his thoughts and racking his brain, how is it possible that God is at the same time both one singular God and also three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? He's trying to make sense of all of this and trying to cram it into his brain, perhaps in a way that's understandable and even reasonable. But he does that long enough, and finally he starts to have a headache, right? And so he decides, I'm going to go for a walk. And Augustine lived in a town not unlike Arcadia, it was a seaside town. And so he went out for a long walk on the beach. And he's out there going for his walk on the beach, thinking big thoughts, cogitating about the identity of God, when suddenly he sees a little boy, five, six years old, playing down there in the sand. And as he gets closer, he sees that this little boy has a shell, and that he's taking the shell and running down to the water's edge and filling the shell with water and then running back up the seashore, up to the sand, and then pouring that water from the shell into a hole that he had dug in the sand. And back and forth he goes over and over with his shell, filling it up with water, and then pouring it into the sand. Augustine gets closer, and he's kind of getting a little chuckle out of this. It's a nice diversion from all of his big thoughts. And as he gets nearer, he says to the little boy, young man, what is it that you are doing here? And the little boy looks up at him, with a great big grin on his face and bright eyes and says, oh, I'm collecting all of the sea and pouring it into this hole that I have dug right here. And Augustine gets a laugh out of this. And he says, oh, silly little boy, you can't collect all of this vast sea and put it into your little hole right here. It's not possible. And the boy suddenly gets a dead serious look on his face, looks up at Augustine, that great teacher of the Christian faith, and says, I can't get all this water into this hole. Neither can you get the vast mystery of God into your little brain. So the story goes. And perhaps it's legendary, but 
it gets at an important truth, which is that you and I are no more able to stick the fullness of who God is into our little brains than we can get all of Lake Michigan into a little hole. It's not possible. And so we are confronted with this choice, with this, with this decision. Are we going to cast our lot with a perfectly reasonable, understandable picture of God that we can get into our little brains? Are we gonna go, or are we going to go along with the wild, majestic, mysterious glory of God as he has revealed himself? That was the choice that was put to early Christians, and that was their dilemma. And it's the one that's still posed to you and me today. Thankfully, thankfully, those early Christians in the years and decades and even centuries after the first Pentecost, thankfully, in the words of the great poet Robert Frost, they took the road less traveled by. And that made all the difference. They wrestled with the reality of God as he had revealed himself in Scripture and in Christian experience. They took all of this different data and tried to make sense of it. And out of that, they came up with a solution to the dilemma that we call the doctrine of the Trinity. And the doctrine of the Trinity, simply put, is that we believe in one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the Latin, tres unitas, three plus one. It's what we mean when we confess God as triune. Simple to say, difficult fully to comprehend. Because there's this paradox right at the heart of it, of course, that God is both three and one. That doesn't seem like very good arithmetic. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, who fell off on the side of taking the, the more reasonable God, great leader he may have been in our country, he was not a good theologian. And he said, all of this jargon and all of this arithmetic, we need to clear it away so that we can have a simple faith and good morals. That doesn't make sense. Maybe it's not good arithmetic, but this is the paradox at the heart of our faith. On the one hand, God is utterly solo and transcendent. He is united far above all things. As we sang just a moment ago, that song of the angels to the prophet Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. That great sanctus is the song that we give in response to God in his unity. God who is far beyond all things. And it's so vital for us to believe that because unlike all the, the Greek pantheon of old where they had all of their middling little mid-management gods who were basically like a bunch of oligarchs, instead we believe in that one exalted God who is outside of creation, upholding all things because we believe in him. We're able to say, as Paul says in the book of Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. He is the true God, the singular, solo, united God. But we also believe at the same time that he has three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in believing that there's three distinct persons within the Trinity, so to speak, we believe that God is not only transcendent, but also imminent. He is not only outside of creation and beyond all things, he is also right here, personally present comes to us in the incarnate person of Christ Jesus and dwells within you and me in the Holy Spirit. Lose that understanding of, of God and his multiplicity of persons 
and God just becomes some absentee landlord separated from us. No, we need both that unity and the diversity, both the singularity and the multiplicity held together in that tension at the same time. Trace unitas, the Trinity. That's what we believe. But again, you might hear that and say, well, wait a second, so now you're trying to make it sound simple, Pastor. Didn't you tell us that simplicity is, is not what we want? No, what we don't want is to be simplistic. We don't want to reduce God or make him merely rational and reasonable. The late Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. once said this, I would not give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the far side of complexity. When we confess the Trinity, that's the simplicity on the far side of complexity. Not easy to comprehend, but able to be apprehended by faith and in worship. And still, I know, some of you will say, okay, pastor, fine, it's a simple view of God, even as it blows up our brains to try and wrap our mind around it, but why does it matter? I mean, come on, does it really matter that we believe in the Trinity? What difference does it make? other than the fact that we would have to rename our church if we didn't have the doctrine of the Trinity. It would be a huge pain, guys, all right? Let me give you three reasons why it matters that we profess the Trinity. First and foremost, while we cannot fully wrap our minds around the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is the most faithful articulate of this belief of who God is, right? That this is the rock-steady reality that undergirds all else. And we all ought to be conforming ourselves to reality as much as we possibly can. If this is the way things really are, then yeah, we want to live in accordance with that truth. Secondly, and even more pointedly, as we said in the Athanasian Creed a moment ago, if this is who God really is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for us to worship any other God suddenly is to, to do so at the peril of everlasting death and hell. Not to put too fine a point on it. If this is who God is, then we must worship him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even if we can't fully grasp what that means. But even to say that, and I hope that that moves you and persuades you, but perhaps for some of you still, you think, ah, that's still just too far off. That's, that's too abstract. I'm living this life now. So let me give you a, a third reason that cuts a little bit closer to home. And that comes from, of all people, a dead agnostic novelist, a guy by the name of David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace was a novelist, wrote books like Infinite Jest, this huge 1,000-book tome, 1,000-page tome, and uh, he was well-known for all of his deep philosophizing and these profound ruminations in his novels. But maybe his, his most powerful and lasting contribution was a commencement speech that he spoke 17 years ago, about this time of year, at Kenyon College in Ohio. And in that commencement speech, David Foster Wallace, the agnostic novelist, said this, not as a confessing Christian, but just as an observer of reality. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. 
There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Thus ends the speech. Actually, he has more to say there. But just to to stop there, he says something which is a, a profoundly biblical truth, which is that you become what you worship. And when you worship the things of this world, you cannot help but become shriveled and small and cramped. He goes on to say that if you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Worship anything but God, and it will end up eating you alive, he says. See, if we don't worship the true God, it's not that you don't worship at all. It's that you'll worship any number of other things, be it money or work or success or beauty or even your own self. And all of that leaves your life small, cramped and shriveled. That's what happens. But instead... When we lift our eyes and worship God as he has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then our lives are exalted in the process. It's like the ginormous cabbages and cantaloupes of Alaska that I recently learned about. You heard about these things? Up in Alaska, because of the the long light of summer, they have cabbages and cantaloupes and other fruits and vegetables that are over 100 pounds. They have ginormous plants that look like they are prehistoric. And why? Because they are constantly looking at the light, absorbing all of that power from above for months, 24 hours a day. And so it is for you and me that as we look to the light of our Lord, as we worship God as he has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our lives are enlarged. Suddenly, we are more expansive in spirit, recognizing that we have been made in the image of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we have been reclaimed and redeemed by God the Son, our Lord Jesus, that you might be his own, and that even now you are being renewed as all creation is by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. When we look to the Lord who is our light and our salvation, we become larger in the process, our lives more expansive and all that God has meant for us to be. It matters that we believe in the Trinity. But as Augustine would later say, if you have understood God perfectly, that's not God. We can't fully wrap our minds around him. We can't comprehend God, but we can apprehend him by faith. And so I close with the words of the hymn that we will close with today. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, three we name Thee, though in essence only one, undivided God we claim Thee. 
and adoring bend the knee, while we own the mystery. We cannot cramp it into our little brains, but we can bend our knee and adore the Holy Trinity. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.